Hello, I'm Kyle Dyer, and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, September the 15th. This week was had a fair amount of weather-related stories, some notable stories, including the 10th anniversary of those devastating Boulder County floods. And then it was also a few weeks late, but Colorado received our first snow of the season on Monday. There is so much more to discuss as well this week. And for that, let me introduce you to our panel. We have Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, Eric Sonderman, columnist for Colorado Politics and the Colorado Springs and Denver Gazettes, Tyrone Glover, criminal defense and civil rights attorney here in Denver, and also Sage Nauman, uh, conservative strategist with Anthem Communications. I'd like to start this week's show with a recognition and appreciation for former Colorado First Lady B. Romer, who passed away this week at the age of 93. She advocated so much for early childhood education over the years here in Colorado. And now, today, Colorado is still talking about the need to do more when it comes to our young learners. In November, we will all be asked to approve additional preschool funding by saying yes to maintaining the tax rates on cigarettes and all other tobacco products. Uh, Patty, the Colorado ballot was certified this week, so all systems go for November. Well, all systems go for some big fights, and we will have plenty of them. Uh, I do want to say, Lee Romer's emphasis on childhood education was so great, and of course it's seen with Jared Polis, and now we're seeing it in this ballot initiative coming up. I think it will pass because all eyes will be on HH, the other initiative that made the ballot on the property tax issue. And people, I think, are feeling they're being nickeled and dimed to death. And this is going to be big dollars, and they're not going to get all their Tabor refund. So it's so complicated, we will have to do a whole show on it to make sense. Other things on that ballot, Aurora, we are not going to be voting on the strong mayor system. That at least is dead for 2023, but it could come back in 2025. But we've got a mayoral election in Aurora, and that is a town that is definitely at odds with each other. And speaking of at odds with each other, DPS, the board, we will be voting for three seats there. That is going to be the ugliest campaign this season, I think. But I, I would, sadly, we are not going to be voting for our new congressional reps, because wouldn't we all love to see Lauren Boebert on the ballot in November we after her wait. antics at Beetlejuice. Yes, we'll have to wait a few more months. Eric. Oh, just sitting here shaking my head. I mean, uh, in the annals of Colorado Inside Out, you know, we have some people who've been the gift that keeps on giving. We have Ward Churchill more recently. We have Tay Anderson. They can all take a back seat. Lauren Boebert is now the headliner to replace all other uh, headliners around this table, around other tables. One just has to shake their head at the bad manners, the lack of grace, just this utter stupidity of, of her performance at the theater uh, a few nights ago. Uh, I think Patty is right in listing what's going to be the headliner issues uh, on the ballot uh, this fall. I think HH is going to be a very ugly and a very expensive fight. And no one is really going to know who's funding either side of it because it is all dark money on the pro side and, and dark money on the con side. Uh, my general rule of ballot issues is that complexity is the enemy of a yes vote. And this one is ultimately complex. Now, they're going to try to sell it as this is the only way you're going to get property tax relief. They're going to hold property tax relief out there as, as, the, as the carrot. And we'll see if the opposition can get it together enough to counteract that. And then, of course, you have DPS, another gift that keeps on giving around this table. Um, their polling numbers just completely underwater. I don't know how any incumbent uh, runs and, and survives in that. And now they're limiting public comment at their meetings as if that was the smart PR move.
-hmm. Just a couple of hours now, rather, to yeah. open into to the end of the meeting. Okay. Tyrone. So, sort of unique to this season, there actually seems like there's going to be some lawsuits, or, you know, or, or lawsuit at least, uh, to follow. So I've been following this lawsuit that's coming out of uh, Washington, but involved lo the local level are some really powerhouse uh, Denver attorneys um, that is trying to disqualify uh, President Trump from being on the ballot here. Um, so reviewed it. It is a, I think, well-pled, extensive lawsuit. Um, it's sort of been bouncing back and forth between uh, state court and federal court, but it will find a home and I think an audience eventually. Um, but it's a 115-page lawsuit. I think it's well-pled. There's actual plaintiffs. Um, so I think it's interesting that some of the cr critics of this lawsuit are saying it's politically motivated are the same folks who were in support of the Creative 303 lawsuit where we didn't even have um, a, a real business or, um, or clients to that matter. It was very much a hypothetical lawsuit. So I'm, I'm going to be excited to see where that goes. Uh, we are sort of the, the, the leaders in that one being filed here in Colorado. One was just filed this week in Minnesota, and I expect this to be the playbook and template for many more around the country. Right. I saw that others are following. Yep. Sage. Yeah, so I'm going to leave a lot of the uh, the legal discussion to actual attorneys, uh, whether or not this 14th Amendment challenge is actually actually has ground um, and actually can you know go anywhere. Um, but one thing that we're seeing in response to the, this lawsuit and across the country is our. Colorado Republican Party Chair Dave Williams has been trying to fundraise off it. He announced that they will then, instead of picking the Republican choice for president in Colorado through the traditional process, they'll do it through the caucus. Um, one thing I'd like to add to that is, you know, Dave Williams talks a very big game. In fact, that, that talk is what got him fired from Donald Trump's campaign in 2020. Uh, and it's hard to get fired as a volunteer, but he managed to do it. Um, and he talks a big game, but one of the things that a state party needs to do anything, whether it's a legal challenge or actually holding caucuses and, and, and assemblies, is money. And the state party is very short on that commodity right now. Um, regardless if the 14th Amendment challenge has legal ground, if it goes anywhere, the fact is, is that if we as a country are going to go back to... Donald Trump and Joe Biden as our choices, we've got a lot bigger problems. Um, if a Democrat is saying that Joe Biden's operating at 100%, they're fooling themselves. And if any Republican is saying that Donald Trump is the best choice and is actually electable, same exact thing. We need to reevaluate where we are as a country. And that's why I am nominating Eric to be the next president of the United States, because <laughs> he can complete sentences. I've seen him do it multiple times. He just did it. Uh, and he does so without interjecting conspiracies that are unfounded, and he actually manages to finish the sentence. So, Eric, I know you probably don't have faith in yourself, but I certainly do. So I'll head up the committee. And it would not be the first person to leap into elected office from this chair. Tom Tancredo, who I always confuse you with, also <laughs> was elected from here. Well, I wasn't expecting this, but the old Sherman statement, uh, I am not running, and if elected, I will not serve. But it is good to know, Sage, that there is one vote out there. <laughs> um, I'd like to say my wife would make two, but I'm not sure about I, that. I need a candidate to grift off of. i got to have someone to raise money for because I can't raise it for the current two that are leading the pack. So. I'm going to ask a question, Tyrone, and I'm not, I don't really know the intricacies of caucuses and all that. Can, he, can the Republican Party here do that and just switch and say this is what we're doing? Can you do that legally? I mean, that's what's to be seen. I'm not an election lawyer, so right. we're a little bit outside of my, my, my bailiwick here. But, you know... That's what they are strategizing around, and I'm sure, you know, if they do something like this that is non-traditional, they're going to open themselves up to other litigation. But I think, to, to Sage's point, this litigation, these attacks, are sort of galvanizing uh, certain folks in the party um, around these issues and around these candidates that, you know, really probably shouldn't be getting their support. 
Yeah, Eric. Well, as long as we're firing questions at the attorney here, my question on this issue is, what's the timeline on which this is going to be decided? And ultimately, I assume the U.S. Supreme Court will weigh in. But, you know, we have primary. It's middle of September. We have caucuses and primaries coming up in four months. Yeah, my, so part of the relief that was asked for in the uh, complaint um, is for sort of like a preliminary injunction, right? So, um, and we saw this um, with the um, gun control um, uh, bill that just very recently went up, um, and the judge there um, said, no, I'm not going to, or I am going to actually do it and not let it go into effect. So essentially, they're asking for the same thing. They're wanting that equitable relief up front while the attorneys hash things out and fight. Um, so I think that could come, you know, once they figure out where they're actually going to settle and, and, and where the, the, the law and, and, and the questions are going to be determined, I would expect that to happen pretty quickly. Okay. All right. While most Colorado cities have leadership positions to be decided in November, as we all know, Denver decided over the summer. And now we're getting a better glimpse on the plans and also the timelines and the cost for Denver to tackle homelessness. Um, it's something that other Colorado cities are keeping an eye on because it's just not a Denver issue, homelessness. It's everywhere. So they're curious what Denver is doing. Yeah, well, Mayor Mike Johnston came out this week and, uh, you know, the estimate on his plan to house a thousand starting or by the end of this calendar year uh, and then go from there there's a price tag of roughly 48 48.6 million dollars on that my understanding i'm not definitive on this but my understanding is that is not instead of the money we're already spending on homeless programs which is well over 50 million dollars a year largely for all kinds of wraparound services of one kind or another um, but it's largely in addition to that. Um, so this is a significant increase in spending on homelessness. Mike Johnston is all in on this plan, and credit to him for that. But he has everything staked on it uh, in terms of very evident political ambitions. Uh, it is his issue number one. Right now, it is almost a sole focus. We finally have a couple of other cabinet appointments made in the, in the last 48 hours or thereabouts. But uh, as I said, he is all in on this. I wish him luck, but man, I re remain dubious on how you do this when there are so many people who are resistant to treatment and resisting to housing options. Mm -hmm. Tyrone. And I, I agree with Eric. I think that's where, you know, w what we're going to see as far as, um, you know, whether this is ultimately successful. We, you know, most of the plans and most of the concrete stuff that we're seeing and where the money is going is on constructing um, the, the sort of the, the tiny home villages or, or, or whatever, whatever you want to call them, um, you know, repurposing the hotels, you know, getting folks into housing. But the plan for all of this is it's temporary, right? Two to four years at most for uh, some of these uh, temporary housing areas. So really, what is the plan once we get folks in, in stable housing? It's not entirely clear uh, that path forward and you know, how successful it's to be. And if it's not ultimately successful on the timeline that's been proposed, what the plan B is there. So. Um, it is a monumental effort. I think it's impressive what he's, he's attempting to do. But once all the groundwork is laid and the infrastructure is there, I think that's where we're going to see the real uh, sort of things get determined.
And November, December is when the move is to start getting people from encampments into these micro communities. Yeah, you know, it's important to put this money into perspective, and we're talking forty-eight thousand dollars for each one of these hundred, each one of these thousand individuals, on top of, as Eric was mentioning, the money that we already spend. I mean, the median income for an individual in Denver is like forty, forty-five thousand. We spend fourteen thousand dollars if you add up all of the state, local, and federal funding into our education per pupil. Fourteen thousand. We're talking forty-eight thousand for this. Um, we're talking huge numbers here, and and what I want to make sure of is that first of all. It's an improvement on what we've had, absolutely, and especially if he actually gets it to move forward. But what I'm afraid of is that this becomes an out-of-sight and out-of-mind problem for a lot of, of people in Denver. Simply putting somebody who's dealing with mental health issues, addiction issues, putting them behind a closed door and under a roof does not solve the issue. And putting them back there and letting them overdose alone is not going to actually be the solution, the long-term solution to solving homelessness. So what I want to see is, you know, like was mentioned, like we're talking two four-year plans. I want to see a plan to actually help these people, not just get them off the streets, which is a valuable thing to do. It's important that we have clean and safe streets, but how do we have a long-term plan to help them? If Mike Johnston can figure out how to do that effectively, if his plan can work, he'll be the most popular mayor in the entire United States. He'll be Rudy Giuliani without the hair dye and indictments. <laughs> you mentioned out of sight, out of mind. Yes, people would be behind their doors in their tiny homes, but those micro-communities are going to be very prevalent for us starting this winter, and, and he's getting a lot of pushback from some communities. Well, all you need to do is drive through the area around downtown, mm. not just downtown. It has affected so many other communities that clearly something needs to be done. We've thrown tens, hundreds of millions of dollars at this issue earlier. So, and what do we have to show for it? So it is good that he is focusing on this. And maybe he's got to do something and this seems like a good start. When you talk about some of the money we've thrown, we do have evidence of putting people in areas, the tiny home villages, you can count you actually have stats on how many of those people were then able to move into more permanent housing and how many of those people were able to get jobs and get their lives back together. So we have two years of documentation now on how that's worked. So Cole Chandler, who led that move, is now in charge. He's the housing czar. So if with any luck, he will know how to follow it. They'll know how to get stats. You're not just locking people up behind closed doors to overdose. There will be services that they're going to have to access. But it's tricky, and it's a gamble. But it's a gamble that Denver must win. I've done some stories and, and talked with a lot of homeless people, and a lot of the times when they do get into housing, they don't know how to budget. They don't know how to do that. So hopefully they're like financial, you know, budgetary as well, Just not just the, the mental health and the substance abuse, but also the practical real-life life skills. There are a lot of services like that, and Denver knows how to employ them. The challenge, as you've mentioned, is getting people to want to leave the streets and get help. Mm -hmm. That is the biggest challenge we face. Yeah, okay. It will be two years ago this November when Colorado voters approved a ballot initiative to reintroduce gray wolves by the end of this year. The approval for this idea came mostly from the front range. And this week, an article came out, Tyrone, that farmers and ranchers on the western slope might only get 24 hours notice when wolves are about to be brought into their area. Yeah, it, 
it seems like this thing is sort of getting rushed, and it's unclear whether if they don't get this done by December 31st, it opens them up to a, a lawsuit. So I think if there's some flexibility there, we can do this in a, in a slightly more measured fashion. Um, but between not being able to get the, the wolves from any of our uh, adjacent neighbors to um, Wyoming being able to shoot the wolves on site and no one says who, you know, no one's snitching, right? Like, it just seems like such a, a fiasco. And yes, this idea that, um, you know, within 24 hours, um, you know, these wolves could be introduced, albeit my understanding of the issue is, you know, we're talking about the introduction of a pack of maybe 12 or 15 uh, wolves every year. So it's not as though, you know, they're gonna open up, um, you know, so, some, some big, uh, big rig and let up you know, huge you know, hundreds of wolves into the wild. So um, this feels like really uncharted territory in, in, in a lot of ways. And there's a states that have done this and it's not gone well. Um, hopefully we get it right. And hopefully we have some flexibility on our timeline so that we can take the appropriate measures and get the right wolves introduced. I agree absolutely that if we can delay, we should. We should delay it for 100 years, if possible, uh, because this is such a half-baked plan. No one involved in it seems to be enthusiastic about doing it. No states want to work with us on it. And the opposition is strong and has valid arguments. I mean, rule Colorado, I mean, and Eric's talked about this multiple times on the show, the war on rule Colorado. They feel that they're under attack. They're looking at you know Denver and Boulder and whoever else, and they're saying, you're voting to reintroduce wolves that are going to put our, you know, our livestock at risk, and then there are all these rules regarding what we can and can't do, and they're going to tell us that there's a 24-hour notice. I mean, this is the kind of thing that state leaders should be looking at going, you know what, this sounded great on paper, this fantasy idea of bringing wolves back to Colorado, that's awesome and all that, but this is not going to go well. And even if we implement it, it's not going to go well. This is going to be a headache we're going to be dealing with for decades into the future. 12 wolves a year doesn't sound like a lot, but guess what? They have babies. And over 10, 20 years, I can't imagine what the wolf population could look like and what its effect could be on rural Colorado. So this is something state leaders should figure out how they can fix, whether it's going back to the ballot or, or whatever it is, or trying to delay it uh, indefinitely, just do it. People don't want this anymore. Well, I'm curious, can the state delay it if voters approved it? I mean, is there, again, the legal question for you, Tyrone, since we have a year? Yeah, and this, I mean, I'm not sure, you know, and we're sort of waiting, I think, for guidance from the Attorney General. Mm. Um, I think that there, you know, there, there's always, you know, if there's cause for delay, right, or if there's, you know, some excuse or justification, then sometimes there can be wiggle room. Will it open them up to lawsuits? And can somebody make a colorable claim? Um, you know, potentially, but they may receive guidance from, you know, the sort of top attorney in, in the land that, hey, there's some flexibility here uh, for you all. Now, you don't really hear about the possibility of delaying this. No, but come January 1, we may see people from Parks and Wildlife dressed up in wolf costumes <laughs> crossing the border from Wyoming just to stay out of the courts. You know, we've spent two years, Coloradans, stakeholders talking about this, and it is tricky because even people within Parks and Wildlife don't agree, but they have been acting in good faith to do what voters wanted. There has been endless discussion. Let's talk about something we haven't had a chance to discuss, which is the BLM's roundup of the wild horses. They just finished using helicopters to round up 122 wild horses in Colorado. Four died during this, and this is something Coloradans have not been able to discuss. 
And that's all on the Western Slope, one particular area. Right, and you have the Wildlife Sanctuary. Pat Craig, who started that most popular tourist attraction in Colorado, according to USA Today, it's in Keensburg. But he just bought a whole new sanctuary out near Craig just for wild horses, where they could go instead of being part of this roundup. Did not know that last piece. I'm going to go back to the wolves to no one's great surprise. I mean, uh, Tyrone referred to it as a fiasco. It's the apt word. And I could only wish that, uh, that Sage's uh, hope would be the case, that this just gets delayed indefinitely. Uh, in terms of the December 31st deadline, if there are no wolves that any state will give to Colorado, then, you know, what are you going to do uh, without uh, wolves coming from another state? Uh, that deadline is just a, a date on a piece of paper. Uh, at this point in time, I mean, the whole notion of 24 hours notice is just an insult. It's an insult to people in rural Colorado. It is awful public relations. I wrote a column recently, Sage referenced it uh, in his response on Governor Polis's relationships with rural Colorado. And my sense is a lot of the estrangement is just because Jared Polis can at this point in time. There are no political forces that is telling him he has to reach out a hand to rural Colorado. And uh, clearly he is not. The governors of Montana, uh, Wyoming, and of Idaho are all being much more responsive to the wishes of rural Colorado at this point in time than our own governor is. We'll see how it plays out. It's not the last time we'll be talking about it. And Oregon is the only state in the running that is considering helping us out. I believe it's this. Oregon at this point and possibly a Native American tribe self-governing tribe in Idaho. That's where Colorado is pinning their hopes, but these hopes are starting to fade. Yeah, it's gonna come quickly, December 31st, right? All right, uh, since it is the weekend, and a lot of people are heading out, maybe to some of our local restaurants, let's talk about what happened this week with the restaurant industry in Colorado. Sage, this is a big deal, this whole Michelin ratings, and it's never happened before in Colorado. Yeah, I, I, our restaurant industry can use some good news. But at the same time, you know, it's important to recognize, you know, these, the restaurants that are usually recognized by the Michelin Guide are usually those that are, they're high class, they're very expensive. I mean, we're talking $175 a plate for two and a half hour uh, multi-course meal, which in my opinion sounds delicious. I haven't gotten an opportunity to go, but... Uh, when you look at the, the average restaurant downtown or elsewhere in Denver, just anywhere in Colorado, you see that they've been struggling if they're still open, uh, with, whether it's COVID-19 or coming out of that, you know, inflationary uh, pressures. Uh, the restaurant industry has been decimated he here and everywhere. I mean, it's, it's not completely unique to just Denver and Colorado. So I think it's important, you know, these kind of awards and accolades, they're great. They're fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy for, for, the, for the chefs and, and the restaurants that, that earned them. Uh, I'm sure it's a, a huge honor. Um, but I think that it's important to recognize that that average restaurant in the state right now is struggling, and this Michelin star means zilch to them. Mm -hmm. Patty. It means people are talking about restaurants, which does have value for them, and that's why the Colorado Tourism Board decided to lure Michelin here. I mean, there's no question, Michelin doesn't go unless, you know, they used to sell expensive guides. No one buys guidebooks anymore. So you, they have to pay 
tourism groups pay to get them here. So first, Michelin has to agree there's a rich enough, and by rich we mean good, delicious enough restaurant scene. But then there has to be money because Michelin pays for all the meals. You, they don't, restaurants don't buy the meals. They, you have to pay to get Michelin to come, but then they are fork. They're doing everything pretty ethically once you realize you're gonna be limited to places that have paid for you to come eat there. Geographic places, not restaurants. So the tourism board is paying $100,000 a year or so, but what Colorado's wasted money in worse ways, as we all know. Wow, I did not realize that. I did not realize that, Eric. Patty's dead on correct about this. Uh, I greeted this whole story with a distinct roll of the eyes when I read it. There's Yes, there's some things right about it. It focuses attention on the restaurant industry, and I guess that is good. But it is completely a pay-to-play operation, 100, that may be as much as $135,000 a year for three years that the State Tourism Office is paying to Michelin. The chambers in Vail and in Aspen are also paying. And if you happen to own a restaurant, even a high-end restaurant like Annette's at the Stanley Marketplace that happens to be in Aurora or that happened to be in Colorado Springs or that happened to be out on the Eastern Plains or anywhere else, you need not bother to apply because Michelin only focused on a few high-end areas. Inflation has hit this industry very, very hard. Anyone who goes out to eat knows that inflation is a factor of the bills that we're paying at restaurants. Uh, restaurants have a lot of needs in this current moment. Uh, I think this is very much of a sidebar in my mind. Mm -hmm. Tyron. Well, hopefully this is an all boats rise type situation. Um, you know, the money's been spent, the awards have been handed out, and we can only hope that some of our local restaurants that can feed you know, more of our populations where it isn't $175 a plate or the ones that have been forced to leave uh, the Denver area uh, because of costs of leases and in real estate and are now in Aurora or Lakewood or Inglewood, uh, maybe with attention to our restaurant scene, you know, they start to have uh, less of a tough time because there are just some excellent, excellent restaurants. Um, and it would be a shame if the only ones that got highlighted were these ones um, that are really only accessible to a very small uh, sliver of our population. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed, hoping this just kind of elevates the whole scene and everybody does better for it. Yeah, and just two weeks ago, speaking of accessibility, Taste of Colorado was canceled, wasn't scheduled for this year, which is so welcoming to everybody in yeah. all different, you know, prices and very affordable. So if, if I could just add one thing, you know, I, I have never in my life, and I haven't been around as long as others at this table. But I have never heard somebody reference a Michelin star being a reason that they've ever gone to a restaurant or they've come to a city or a state. I have never heard that occur. So as much as I would like to think that this is going to be one of those situations where all restaurants benefit, um, I, I, I just don't see that. I, I, I get, go interview restaurant owners on the street. I guarantee they're not going to say like, yeah, you know, we just have people coming through the door saying, well, you know, we were stopping at this one, you know, Michelin rated restaurant and we just decided to stop here as well. That doesn't happen. I've watched Ratatouille about 97 times in the last month because my son's addicted to it. This is not Ratatouille, okay? The reviewer doesn't come in and go, bam, this is amazing. It's either great or it closes down. It's not the way it works anymore. And so, you know, again, I think that it's it's great that these restaurants are recognized. I love it. Good for them. I think it's, it's probably one of the things they strive for in life is to be earn a Michelin star. Very happy for them. Nothing against them. But come on. That's, this is, no one is coming to the state of Colorado or to the city of Denver because we've got a restaurant that got a Michelin star. I've, I've never heard that happen before. Well, I have to disagree because Frasca, which got a star, mm -hmm. definitely got a 
national attention. And let me just point out, there are 44 restaurants that were cited by Michelin because they do recommended, they do cheaper places. One is Marco's Cold Fired Pizza. One is a barbecue joint. I don't love Michelin, how Michelin did it, but there, it will help a lot of restaurants. I, I, I wish there was a way to quantify that. Otherwise, it's they will. We're going to debate they're, the hypothetical. They're pay next year, so yeah. they will quantify we'll it. No. Okay, that'll be interesting. All right, now let's get to some of the highs and lows of this week. We've kind of talked on quite a few lows already, but Patty, let's start. I'm returning to a low, which is Lauren Boebert's night at the theater. She didn't even get to finish the show. Has gotten more attention in this town than all the other theater productions going on. Many theaters have started their season this week. We've got a great active theater season that needs people to go out and see plays. And local and not touring. And there are plenty of new companies really struggling. Yeah, okay, thanks for that reminder. Right on to Patty, but maybe if some of these companies would offer season tickets to Lauren Boebert, it would generate the kind of publicity that they're, they're short on. Just throwing it out there. Uh, my disgrace, the head of the Chicago Teachers Union, Stacy Davis Gates, referred, and I quote, to school choice advocates as bigots and fascists, called um, private schools, quote, segregated academies. Guess what she sends her son? I'll leave it at that. Okay. Tyrone. And I want to flag this before we're talking about it on, on the show as another uh, bad decision coming from the Supreme Court, but we had a court in Texas just find DACA to be unconstitutional. So it looks like that's going to be headed to the Supreme Court. And with so many dreamers here in Colorado, it's definitely something we should have our eyes on, um, you know, before we're here bemoaning the decision. My disappointment is the retirement announcement from Senator Mitt Romney. It's not so much about him and his, you know, policy opinions, but more so that we are losing individuals in what is the most, should be the most deliberative body on the face of the earth, uh, that have great pride in that institution and respect for it, and they're leaving because they can't take it anymore within their own party and in, you know, and with how politics in general uh, has become in this country. I think that's bad for our country. I think it's bad for my party, the Republican Party, um, and, uh, you know, I wish him the very best. And I, I, I hope that, you know, after 25 years in public service, he gets some time to rest. But it's disappointing that his voice will not be there uh, in the Senate anymore. Something positive. Well, lest I sound like a Michelin apologist, I was disappointed that they didn't do anything for the heritage restaurants, Latino heritage restaurants in Denver. Hispanic Heritage Month starts today. While Sage is watching Ratatouille, I'm going to be going out to one of the low-cost, family-run Mexican restaurants in Denver. And you all should, too. That sounds good. That sounds very good. You buying? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, two quickies. One to a panelist who's often at this table with us, Krista Kafer, who put her name on that lawsuit that uh, Tyrone and uh, Sage referenced earlier. It's the subject of my column coming this weekend, and I have a slightly different take on it than Krista, but she is someone of courage and a principle as a Republican and as a conservative. Kudos to her. And secondly, just Lashana Tova. Happy Rosh Hashanah to all of our Jewish friends and viewers. Thank you. So anyone who knows me knows I'm not a huge college football guy, but I am an alumni of uh, CU Law School. So go Buffs, go Coach Prime. It's looking great. We're going to have national television for the CU, CSU. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I'm coming for those alumni tickets. So we'll see if there's any left. It's an exciting time. Yep.
Yeah, and, and to not make it seem like uh, I'm, I'm totally opposed to any kind of praise or good news out of the restaurant industry, I, I did learn that In-N-Out is coming to Brighton, where I live. So <laughs> I am very excited about that as someone who was born and raised in California. But no, my, one of the things I wanted to, to mention is uh, Congressman Ken Buck has twice now in the last week or two stood up to the base of his own party and said, you're wrong. The first uh, regarding January 6th, uh, detainees, whatever you, whatever you call them, the people who are being tried for participating in January 6th, um, he basically said, no, they're not being mistreated, and they belong there because of what they did. Um, that took courage. It shouldn't take courage to say something like that, but it did. And then secondly, uh, he was asked about the impeachment inquiry. And he said, well, as of right now, I haven't seen the connection between Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. I have not seen that business connection that everyone is alluding to. Again, a small thing, all him, all, just him saying, I haven't seen that yet, has earned him tons of hate. And so for that, again, it shouldn't be a courageous move, but it was, and no one's praising him for it because either you don't like Ken Buck or you're a Republican and now you really don't like him because he's not siding with you. Um, you know, those kind of things, while it's incremental, should be recognized. Okay. Thank you. My pause of the week, no, I'm not taking a side on CU or CSU, Tyrone. I'm headed back home to the D.C. area to celebrate my mom's 90th birthday. Aside from being the best friend, my mom is still an accomplished artist who just finished, at 90, another commission of another historic building in D.C. Mom has instilled in me that you have to have that positive attitude every day when you get up, so I wish you all a very positive week ahead, no matter who wins the Rocky Mountain Showdown. Have a great week. Thanks to the fabulous panel. Thanks to all of you who are watching at home or on your device or listening on our podcast. I'm Kyle Dyer. I will see you next week here on PBS 12.